Hello, Spain fans. You're listening to the When in Spain podcast, brought to you by me, Paul Birch, and brought to you also by the When in Spain patrons. The kindness of these fantastic people who sign up to support the show by making small monthly pledges via the crowdfunding website Patreon. So a big thank you to you guys, patrons, uh, for supporting the show and bringing it to the wider audience. In this episode, I'm talking about do's and don'ts in Spain. Things you should definitely do and things that you probably shouldn't do. Now, this is all open to interpretation depending on your own point of view, I guess. And, you know, this is uh, pretty subjective. This is based on my experience of living in Spain for several years. And I had a little trawl around on the internet and there are dozens of articles about you should do this in Spain, you should never do this in Spain. Some of which are um, quite accurate and some of which are based around cliches and I think are just not really that true anymore. So I thought um, that I would give you my take on things that are worth doing in Spain and things that you really probably shouldn't. But I think they're all useful points to know, especially if you're coming to Spain on a holiday, if you're coming to Spain uh, for any extended period of time to live or work or maybe, you know, stay here for a few months and travel around the country, whatever it is, I think these do's and don'ts, which are basically tips, are going to really help you guys to get under the skin of Spain, um, to give you an authentic experience when you're here, to help you kind of understand a little bit more how things work here as well, and um, to kind of dispel some of the myths or stereotypes um, that we hear quite often about Spain. So again, as I say, this is all from my point of view. I'd be interested to hear what you guys, the listeners, think about this because you may have a completely different experience. I'd be really intrigued to know uh, if these things ring true for you guys as well. But my aim really is to offer you some useful insights and advice on all sorts of different matters. Um, just before we get into the list, I would just like to say a big thank you to new When in Spain patrons who have recently signed up to support this podcast. So a quick shout out and a big gracias to Amy Sept. Thank you, Amy. To Sarah Anderson, or is it Sarah Anderson? Thank you to you, Sarah or Sarah. And also a big thank you to Jerry Forbert. Muchísimas gracias also to Sean Essex and also a massive gracias to Anna Barglauska, who uh, is actually a friend of mine or a friend of Karina's. So thank you, Anna. Very kind of you to support the podcast. To all of you, big thanks for keeping this show going. Really, without the patrons, I don't know where this show would be or if I would really realistically still be doing it, whether it would be viable. So uh, it's massively appreciated to support the show with a little bit of financial help. And anyone else who enjoys the podcast, I don't want to bang on about it for ages, but if you do enjoy the show and maybe you've been listening for a while and you're like, mm, oh, maybe I will become a patron, please do. Um, it all really helps and makes a big difference. And it's easy. You just head across to patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. That's the crowdfunding website. That's my page. When you hit that page, it's all self-explanatory. Super easy. You can sign up in a couple of minutes and you can sign up at the minimum level I think is $3 per month just to support the podcast and I'll give you a shout out of course uh, if you pledge at $5 and above and there are various tiers um, above $5 but if you pledge at the $5 uh, level or above 
love, you will get access to Bodas When in Spain content. And so if you'd like more When in Spain, you know what to do. And please do, because that would be great. Anyway, let's get into the episode. I wanted to talk about these do's and don'ts. So I'm going to start off with the do's. Um, my first one on the do list is do be punctual. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you guys have got this sort of notion that Spaniards are a little bit relaxed when it comes to timekeeping and, you know, you arrange to meet at 9.30 but people rock up at 10 o'clock or 10.15. Um, in my experience of living in Spain for several years, I'm going to say it's a bit of a myth, a bit of a cliche, a bit of a stereotype, whatever you want to call it. Um... Spanish people are very punctual, in my experience, um, as punctual, I think, as Brits. Now, of course, it does depend on the situation. Um, you know, if, if there is a difference between you know, a professional uh, side of things and our uh, social lives, for example. Certainly, when we're talking about jobs, interviews, meetings, anything related with business, anything in the sort of professional world, um, I've had no experience of people being really late or unreliable or anything like that. Super punctual, uh, really good. Um, um, if we're talking about meeting up with friends uh, to go for a beer or go to a restaurant or meet up or whatever, um, again, pretty punctual. Um, nine times out of ten, arrive exactly at the time that was arranged. Um, and yeah, OK, you're going to get a few people who rock up five or ten minutes late, but they're going to send you a, a message ahead of time to say, sorry, I'm running a bit late, just as uh, would happen in pretty much every other country around the world. But this idea of, uh, you know, arranging to meet up and people just turn up half an hour late or, or more without telling you no in my experience it's simply not true and I'm not really the most punctual of people to be honest um, you know and quite often I'm the one who's late and my Spanish friends are already there waiting I think maybe where it could be different is um, maybe for some like transport situations particularly like local buses and things in small villages um, that, that might not run perfectly on time if we're talking about people uh, in general, I'm going to say Spaniards are punctual. So don't don't fall for that stereotype that, you know, you can just be late and that's acceptable and no one's going to get a little bit annoyed or fed up because I just don't think that's the case. Certainly not in my experience. Number two on my do list, and I did an episode all about this Spanish phenomenon, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's uh, do eat a menu del dia. Um, in a Spanish restaurant or a Spanish bar. The menu del dia is the fixed price menu, lunch menu, fantastic value. You're going to get three courses. You're going to get some wine, bread, um, decent quality, I would say, for the most part. Sometimes the quality is a little bit, not bad, but maybe basic. And, um, you know, you're looking at 10 euros, 12 euros in general for a three course meal with wine at lunchtime. And not only that, it's going to be a really authentic experience. This is where you're going to have lunch surrounded by lots of other Spanish people. So go and check out the Menu del Dia episode of When in Spain because it's got a little interesting story and history behind its existence, actually, which I'm not going to tell you now. Go and check out the episode about it. Resist the temptation to just go to the sort of touristy chain restaurants with a lurid coloured menus outside and the sort of fake paella dish out on the street and the uh, jug of sangria with some fruit in it and a wooden spoon stuck in it, you know, out on a table outside the restaurant to sort of say, hey, this is an authentic Spanish fare. No, don't do that. I mean, even if you're in Spain and you only do it once, just go one time to your average Spanish restaurant or bar and go and eat a menu del dia. I am 
99% sure that you will not be disappointed. And on that note, yeah, um, I would just say, yeah, do be careful of chain restaurants uh, masquerading as authentic eating places. And, you know, exactly the kind of thing I just said about, you know, paella being, you know, all these sort of uh, dishes being outside the restaurant or big colourful menus with uh, the menu in five different languages. You know, this is tourist stuff and this is not really going to give you the authentic experience. And also it's probably going to be not very good quality and overpriced. And I'm saying that the place where you're going to get a good menu, Lea, it doesn't have to be somewhere that looks really expensive, although high-end restaurants will probably offer a menu they but they're the kind of bars where you know they look maybe a little bit shabby or a little bit dated a little bit old-fashioned but that's where you're going to get the authentic experience you know the paper tablecloth um, you're going to get some old boys propping up at the bar there might be a television on in the background and the noise of the the gambling machine the fruit machine in the background but you'll know because it'll be full of spanish people all eating together at lunchtime. I'm going to talk a bit more about eating times um, a bit later. My next thing on the list is enjoy the sobremesa. What is the sobremesa? Um, the sobremesa literally means like on the table is this phenomenon of loitering and chatting and having more drinks. I'm thinking more at the weekend. Now, I guess this is only really going to happen if you're having lunch with Spanish people, but maybe it would be a great idea to adopt it when you come to Spain and visit as well. So you uh, you finished eating. You um, would you will not have been you know presented with your, with your bill because they'll only bring you your bill when you're ready and when you ask for it. You, in Spain, you notice that you're not going to be rushed out of the restaurant as soon as you've finished, which sometimes happens in other countries, I've noticed. You know, you can take your time. And this sobremesa is simply the art of relaxing, having good conversation, digesting your food, ordering a few little chupitos, a few little shots of a little uh, digestif to help your meal go down, maybe ordering that uh, third glass of wine, maybe ordering yourself a gin and tonic, and just chatting and relaxing and this can go on for well you know if you're in a someone's home uh, or if you're in a big group sometimes this can go on for about two hours and uh, I remember when I first came to Spain I used to get a bit restless and think well you know we finished eating now can we pay the bill and go or go and do something else but I've kind of learned now the art of just going with the flow taking these meal times in a very leisurely way don't think right i finished eating what's next obviously it's not always appropriate because you might have things to do and i'd say a sobremesa doesn't really happen much uh you know lunchtime midweek because people have got jobs to get back to and that kind of thing but it would happen more in the evening and certainly at weekends certainly at weekends so the sobremesa try try it out see if you can do it even if you're not with spanish people when you go to a restaurant take your time The next one, number four on my do list, is go to one of these indoor municipal food markets. I kind of like bit of a cliche but theatres of food if you like they are featured in a couple of uh, my previous when in spain podcast episodes now these places are a little bit sometimes hard to find they might not be really obvious but they're usually found in city centers Uh, in bigger cities you may find several of them in each neighborhood wherever you're staying go inside they're not always the most attractive looking buildings to be honest from the outside Um, you know if you're thinking of like the boqueria in barcelona 
um, for example, that's not really what I would call your typical uh, municipal indoor food market. That is aimed at tourists, a little bit like the Mercado de San Miguel in Madrid also, which is, don't get me wrong, they're both fantastic places to go and explore. But if you want a really authentic experience and you want to go and buy some fresh produce, whether it's jamón or cheese or fruit and vegetables or fish or whatever, don't go to a supermarket. Go to one of these municipal markets, these indoor markets. Um, They're really interesting places to walk around because the produce is displayed beautifully. Um, They're normally pretty big, so you have lots of different stalls to choose from. You're going to see the locals there. You're going to see these old grannies chatting, wheeling their little pull-along trolley around. Uh, You're going to see people chatting with the stall holders and the vendors. Uh, The vendors will be, uh, you know, amenable. You might have to practice a bit of Spanish, but, you know, they might give you a little extra bunch of parsley for free, or they might give you a few recipe suggestions. And you'll notice the produce is good quality. It's not expensive, particularly compared to supermarkets. And it's just a really enjoyable, pleasant and authentic Spanish shopping experience. Go inside. Don't be scared to go in. Some people are a bit squeamish because sometimes, you know, you go in and you've got the fresh fish and the seafood stalls and the smell can uh, kind of knock you for six a little bit at first. But once you get past that, you know, don't hesitate to go in and buy something or ask questions or points. Nine times out of ten, these stallholders will be happy to let you sample something for free as well. And I would say if you're going to buy Spanish and there's an episode all about this with foodie tour guide Margaret Sperling where we went to a municipal market in Madrid to uh, talk about jamón. Uh, it's a really good place to go and buy some jamón, you know, just buy a, you know, 300 grams to take away and go and have a picnic with it. But they're great places. They're fascinating. For me, it's like a stepping back in time uh, that are open usually in the mornings until about two o'clock. They all shut down at lunchtime and then they reopen again at about five o'clock in the evening and they're open until I don't know eight or nine o'clock at night. Related to these markets, and I did mention seafood, do push yourself to try some more unusual delicacies, maybe things that you wouldn't normally consider eating or that maybe you're a bit squeamish about. Think, oh, it looks a bit, you know, looks doesn't look very nice or especially if we're talking about seafood, awful, unusual cuts of meat that maybe you're not used to. Go and be a bit more adventurous. You know, if you go to a bar and you see them serving bull's tail, rabo de toro, try it. It's absolutely amazing. Now, the idea that it's a tail from a bull, might you might think, oh, no, I don't know about that. But, you know, you'd happily eat steak or you'd eat some kind of stew made from other cuts of beef. Go and try the tail. It's tender, gelatinous, full of flavour, and they make it in an amazing sauce. This is something that you're going to find all over Spain, really, but uh, is uh, very common in Andalusia and particularly in Cordova. And it's something that at first I was a bit like, oh, no, it's a bull's tail. Hmm, where's that tail been? And it's now one of my all-time favourite Spanish dishes. You know, you might walk into a bar and see snails, a glass of snails in a broth. And you might think, oh my God, seriously, snails? I thought that only happened in France. No, snails are big in Spain too. Give them a try. It's all part of the authentic experience. My advice is, in general, push yourself to try something beyond your typical, um, I don't know, bocadillo de jamón or your uh, pincho de tortilla de patatas, your Spanish omelette or your chorizo. Number six on the do list, do order a caña or a doble beer. What I mean by this, and again, I did an episode about how to order beer like a local like a native, because in Spain, ordering beer is actually something that is kind of um, 
complicated. It can get a bit complicated, strangely enough, for something as simple as a beer. Um, there's lots of vocabulary around it. Go and check out the back catalogue of the episode I did all about Spanish beer, brands, types, and how to order it, importantly. And when I say order a caña or a doble, I'm basically saying, if you come to Spain and you're on holiday and you want to kind of not look like your typical giri tourist, order a small beer. Order a caña, which is the small-sized beer, uh, which is about 200 millilitres. Now, I know at first people go, oh, my God, look, you know, if you'll come from like Northern Europe or the UK or America. Uh, you might be sort of thinking, well, this is a ridiculously small beer. It's like a thimble of beer. OK, then, then go for the doble, which is like the size of two cañas. Um, there is rationale behind it because of the hot weather. You don't want to order a huge giant beer. Um, because, you know, within 10 minutes sitting outside in the heat, it will be warm before you finished it. So there is a bit of logic as to why Spanish people usually only order small beers. Order a small beer, uh, caña or a doble, uh, which have lots of other names as well, depending on where you are in Spain. So go and check out the beer episode. But what I'm saying is don't go and order a pint or a great big li- half litre jug of beer. Well, you know, I'm not saying don't. I'm saying you can if you want. But I'm saying it's going to get warm unless you're really quick at drinking. But the risk is when you do that, the bartender is going to be like, ah, yeah. Typical Brit or Giri or Northern European or American who's going to get drunk, necking pints of lager as quickly as possible. The other thing is that they might try and charge you a bit extra because, you know, I would say in general, Spanish people don't order pints of beer or half litres of beer, these big jugs that you see with a handle on them. Uh, It's not common. Uh, So if you want to kind of fit in and not stand out so much, I'd go for a caña or a doble. Um, But it's also might, you might not get ripped off if you just go for a caña or a doble rather than these great big jugs or pints, which are rarely served Uh, to Spaniards so I don't know you're going to see it more in the kind of touristy areas for sure but I'm just giving you a little bit of advice that that's how Spanish people drink beer Okay, the next one on the list. Now, I guess this only really applies um, if you're a Spanish speaker, if you speak Spanish when you're in Spain, but it's um, kind of important, I guess. It's knowing when to use tú or usted, which is the uh, informal and polite way to say you. So when you address someone uh, in any given situation, you will have to decide whether you're going to use tú or usted, and you will conjugate the verb. Uh, conjugations. Uh, conjugate the verb accordingly, so you'll have to know these verbs. Now, if you don't speak Spanish, then I guess it's not really important. Usted is the polite form. It's a bit like in French um, uh, when they use vous for the polite form and tu for the uh, informal. And it's the same in Spanish, tu and usted. It's a case of knowing really when to use it. Now, uh, I would say that usted is much less commonly used in Spain, the polite form, than, say, vous is in France, okay? So most of the time you're going to be using tu, uh, addressing people as you in the informal way with tu. Um, But, you know, you will occasionally need to use usted. So when do you use usted uh, properly? When's the correct time to use the usted form of you? Well, I'm going to say majority of time you use it is with older people. And when I say older, I'm probably thinking maybe 70 years old and above. An elderly person. So, for example, if I'm on the metro and I see an older person get on the on the carriage and I get up to offer them my seat, I would say to them 
quiere sentar. Usted quiere sentar? Maybe I wouldn't say usted, but I would conjugate the verb in the usted form. So instead of saying quieres, which is tú quieres, which is the informal, I would say quiere sentar to an elderly person. And that's really about the only time that I can think when I would use it. Uh, the other time I might use it is when I go to a bar and I notice that the uh, owner or the waiter is is visibly elderly, and which is still quite common in Spain. I know a few bars in Madrid where it's not uncommon to see waiters who are quite clearly uh, about 70 years old or, or more. And, uh, and that's another situation when I would use the Usted form. Uh, for example, I would say, uh, me trae la cuenta, por favor, o me pone, me pone una caña, por favor, o me dice cuánto le debo. So it's all of these forms of the verb which end in E and not in ES. So, so me pones una caña, o me traes la cuenta, would be the uh, informal with two because they end in S. But with an elderly waiter, I might be tempted to use quiere, o me pone, o me dice, instead of the tu form, which uh, end in S's. The other time you might use it is in a very formal situation when you're meeting someone, I don't know, uh, royalty, if you meet the king of Spain, you would definitely use it, but that's not very likely to happen. I used it, for example, uh, when I first started uh, dating Karina and I met her parents for the first time and I used usted as a form of respect. Um, and it was quite funny because uh, I don't know, after not very long, uh, Karina's mum said to me, oh, please don't, don't, don't call me usted. It makes me feel old. Um, so <laughs> in a joking kind of way. So I stopped using usted. And as you get to know someone in that situation, you revert to tú. Having said that, Karina's parents are from Ecuador. And in South America, in Latin America, I should say, um, it's much more common to use usted between people you know maybe quite well or maybe in public situations, just in general, even if you went to a bar or a restaurant in, in Latin America and you were ordering something, uh, even if the person serving you was quite young, you might use usted. And I've noticed it in Madrid as well. Obviously, there are lots of people in Madrid from South America or from Latin America working in Madrid. And I've noticed if I go into a bar and there's a, a Latin American person serving that they will quite often address me as usted uh, as well. So it's quite an interesting little linguistic curiosity, I suppose. You might start using usted with someone and they say, oh, no, 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 por favor, trátame, trátame de tú. For example, treat me with the two form, please. Or, or someone might say, <laughs> um, I don't think this will be very likely to happen, but someone might say if you use tú with them, uh, they might say, hey, por favor, trátame de usted. Please treat me with the usted form of the verb instead because they want you to be a bit more respectful. And I think that's what it comes down to. It's a kind of respect. The next one on my do's list. I guess most people already know this, but it's worth mentioning just in case, uh, especially if it's your first time to Spain. Um, expect many shops to be closed in the middle of the day, in the afternoon, and uh, maybe even more so on the Sunday as well. Um, I guess this does vary uh, according to where you are. Uh, in Madrid, maybe it's less common uh, in the bigger cities. But even so, even in Madrid, in neighbourhood shops, uh, you're going to find that a lot of the smaller ones do close in the middle of the day for a long lunch break. And I think when I first came to Spain, this threw me a bit because I remember one time I needed to get a new SIM card for my phone uh, and I had to go to a Vodafone 
uh, shop. And I thought, well, Vodafone is a big, well-known chain. You know, it's going to be open, you know, all day long, surely. And I went to a Vodafone shop in Madrid and uh, it was shut. And I was like, oh, great. I'm, on, you know, I, you only have a limited time to do these things because you do it when you're on your lunch break. And I realized that actually sometimes it's quite difficult to get things done on your lunch break because a lot of the places you need, including banks, also are closed in the middle of the day. And I, I say they close probably normally about two o'clock, maybe 2.30, and they won't reopen again until maybe 5 or 5.30 in the evening. And then, of course, they'll stay open uh, later. I mean, shops in Spain compared to the UK, I think, uh, stay open. Um, but this does not apply to the big shops. If you're in the centre of Madrid walking down Gran Vía, all of the shops will stay open, you know, throughout the day. Spanish and, and big international chains will be open constantly. And that goes for all of the other big Spanish cities and towns as well. Um, but it's just something to be aware of. Don't expect everything to be open continuously from, you know, nine o'clock in the morning until seven o'clock in the evening. The next one on my list for the do's, and this is one of my favourite things about Spain, and I think it's something that's quite common in Mediterranean Europe, is uh, do go for a paseo, el paseo. Now, the paseo is when everyone goes out for their evening walk. Uh, usually uh, just as the heat of the day is subsiding a bit it's cooling down and uh, people go for their walk before they have their evening meal don't forget that uh, in Spain people eat quite late normally from about 9.30 onwards and so at about 8, 8.30 you're going to notice the streets filling up with people just going for their evening walk especially the older generation your abuelos y abuelas your your, your grannies and granddads uh, who go out quite often maybe more at the weekend they will dress up a bit make an effort and you'll see the uh, older gentleman with a with a you know a jacket and a tie and the ladies uh, in a nice dress or a kind of suit or something like that uh, they look quite smart um, and especially at the weekend this is a lovely thing to do because it's such a great opportunity to people watch so my advice is get out into the streets about eight o'clock don't go to a restaurant at that time hang on until a bit later and go for a wander around the streets people watch see everyone out and about you'll see generations of families together you'll see people walking their dogs I mean it's something really heartwarming about it I love it when I go out and you see uh, grandparents parents and and children and like three or four generations of a family strolling around the streets talking ambling along very slowly it's a paseo el paseo is not walking fast it's not rushing it's kind of wandering sauntering along uh, you'll see people doing in parks, in streets, and it's also an opportunity to stop off at a terraza as well, and people might sit down and have a little drink before their evening meal. It's one of my favourite things about Spain, and it's a great way to soak up a bit of authentic Spanish life. So don't be shut away in your uh, hotel or apartment or wherever at that time. Make sure you're out and about in the streets at 8.30, and definitely don't be going to a restaurant at that time, because it's a bit too early, really, for Spain. The last one on my list of do's is do order a drink called Tinto de Verano and do not order sangria. Now, I think sangria is this uh, drink that we think of when we think of Spain. Um, But I have to say, all my years living in Spain and having visited lots of different parts of Spain, people really don't drink sangria. And I think it came about, I think it was a marketing idea from a world fair or some tourism exhibition back in the, I don't know, 50s or 60s, uh, a drink that was kind of invented uh, for tourists. I'm not, don't quote me on that. That's that's what I've 
heard. I don't know the exact history behind sangria, but all I'm saying is it is actually not that Spanish. You're going to find jugs of sangria in tourist spots on the on the coasts, in touristy restaurants. The typical, as I mentioned earlier, jug of sangria uh, sat outside a restaurant with fruit and a wooden spoon in it as a way of advertising, hey, we sell sangria. Um, but instead, what people drink in Spain which is similar, is Tinto de Verano. Tinto de Verano is a summer red wine. It's red wine mixed with uh, a drink called, a soft drink called Casera, which is a, uh, well, it's a bit like sparkling water. It's a bit like a soda. It has a slight lemony tinge to it, but it doesn't really have much flavor. And so they mix red wine with that in a jug or in a glass with lots of ice and usually a slice of lemon or maybe orange and that's it there's not it's not something which served with you know loads of fruit and apple and god knows what else floating in it um, and it's not uh, adulterated with any with any other spirits or alcohol or liqueur it's just red wine this fizzy clear soda called casera and that is your typical refreshing summer drink uh, so order a tinto de verano you're going to see it everywhere don't go for sangria most places won't serve sangria um, and if they do, again, it's going to be a touristy place and they're probably going to overcharge you uh, for it and give you a great big glass of it and charge you like, I don't know, five or six euros. Your Tinto de Verano, you can get for probably two euros or 250 or something like that. And it's much more the authentic wine-based refreshing drink that you're going to see most Spanish people drinking. Okay, so that's the list of do's. I'm going to move on to the don'ts in a second. Uh, just before I get into the don'ts, uh, just a quick note to say, When in Spain is not just a podcast. Um, we are on all of the usual social media hangouts. We've got a great uh, Facebook group, which you can join for free. Uh, we're on Instagram. Go and give us a follow on Instagram. The handle is at Spain one to see uh, photos that I post every week and videos from around Madrid and other parts of Spain when I get the chance. We're also on Twitter, and I must make a special mention of the new when in spain podcast website uh, during lockdown when i had a lot of time on my hands i built a website for when in spain you need to go to when in spain podcast.com when in spain podcast.com there you will find the entire back catalog of episodes and you will find more detailed show notes notes about each episode as well with photos videos links just a bit more detailed information about each episode there uh, there's also information in general about the podcast a little bit of blurb about me if anyone's interested and there's also information on there about becoming a when in spain patron as well so if you'd like to find out a little bit more about it and what it entails and uh, why it's important to become a when in spain patron there is a little page on the website all about that but go and check out the new website wheninspainpodcast.com just to say, if you're new to the podcast and maybe you've only listened to the last couple of recent episodes, do go and check back because there are 75 episodes in the back catalogue all about travel, culture, my personal insights of living and working in Spain. There's uh, episodes giving practical advice about living and working here, finding somewhere to live, about different cities, that kind of thing. There are episodes about learning Spanish, food and drink. I mean, there really is something 
something for everyone. If you're interested in Spain, uh, there is something that's bound to interest you. So go and check back the past episodes. And just a note about the uh, website. If you're someone who isn't too keen on using your smartphone to listen to podcasts, or if you're a bit of a technophobe and you don't like uh, downloading apps and all of that kind of thing, and you prefer to use your desktop computer or your laptop or your tablet, uh, the When in Spain podcast website is a really good place to do that. You can just stream all of the episodes right there on your desktop as well. So go and check out the whenispainpodcast.com, whenispainpodcast.com. If you are new to the podcast, as someone recently said in a review, described the podcast as the nearest thing to Spain without being there. And yeah, that's exactly what I aim to do, along with the help of uh, guests as well, is bring a little slice of Spain and Spanish culture into your ears on a regular basis. Um, There's been a little bit of a pause in episodes this month, um, just had a crazy month with work and teaching and final exams. Now that's winding down. Um, I'll be back into the swing of getting you at least three to four brand new When in Spain episodes each month. So let's get into our list of don'ts, our don'ts in Spain. I mean, take this with a pinch of salt. I'm not saying do not ever do this no matter what. Um, But, you know, it's kind of my advice based on my own experience of living in Spain. There is an element of generalisation about it, for sure. But, you know, these are things, these are don'ts um, just to take into account when you're coming to travel or visit Spain or indeed when you come to live here. The first one on the don'ts list is don't go over the top with pleases and thank yous. Use them sparingly. Now, I'm not saying that Spaniards are rude and they never say please and thank you, and that is maybe a little bit of a cliche, yes, but you're going to find that, in general, Spaniards don't say please and thank you as much as we might do in the UK or in the United States or uh, other English-speaking countries, I think. And I'm not really saying don't say please and thank you. Um, You can say please and thank you as much as you want. It doesn't matter. Maybe what I'm saying really is don't expect Spaniards to be as generous with their pleases and thank yous as you may be used to. I'm thinking, you know, in the UK, I go into a shop to buy something, I put whatever it is down on the counter, and I might say thank you. And I'll give them the money, and as I place the money in their hand, I might say thank you. And then when they give me the change, I might say, oh, thank you. And then as I walk out, I'll say thank you, bye. And in Spain, that wouldn't happen. And maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm a bit too over the top and a bit overly polite with my thank yous uh, in the UK. In Spain, I kind of have to resist, which is a bit stupid, really, because it doesn't matter. But I kind of find myself, no, don't say thank you to you. Don't say please too much because it's going to seem a bit over the top, a bit exaggerated. Um, <laughs> some of my Spanish friends, for example, do say in the kind of cliche, at least, about British people is like, oh my God, really over the top with the please and thank yous all the time, especially among friends. You know, you don't need to be saying please and thank you all the time with people you know well. You know, if you go to dinner at someone's house, you don't need to say, please, can you pass me the salt? Oh, thank you. Oh, please, can you do this? Oh, thank you. You don't need it. It's just like, pass me the salt. No one's going to be offended. So in that case, you know, Spanish just use them a bit more sparingly. But I'm not saying, you know, don't say please and thank you. Um, You know, you can be as polite as you want. And it does depend on the person. I was asking some of my Spanish students about this the other day with this podcast in mind. And uh, they kind of tended to agree. They said, no, Spanish people 
people don't say please and thank you as much maybe as other countries. But then a couple of my students said, well, actually, I do. I say please and thank you all the time. You know, why not? It doesn't matter. It depends. But I think it's just something to be aware of. One thing that I noticed, and a lot of people say this when they first come to Spain, Spaniards are just much more direct with their requests, I should say, when you're in a restaurant or a bar or a shop or something like that. They just don't say it all the time. They might just say, can you give me? Uh, or give me this, bring me the bill. You might say, you know, these little softeners where they might say, bring me the bill when you can. Bring me the bill when you can. Me traes la cuenta cuando puedas. Not gushing with pleases and thank yous. So there's just something to be aware of. But I'm not saying don't say por favor and don't say gracias. They're not being rude. It's just a cultural thing. Number two on the don'ts list. Don't eat paella or paella if you want it in the Giri pronunciation, don't eat paella for dinner. Spaniards eat paella on a Sunday lunchtime. That's the typical time to eat paella. And let's also not forget that it doesn't matter how much paella has been kind of marketed as like the typical Spanish dish, um, that really it's not eaten all over Spain at all. It comes from the Valencia region of Spain. It's very common in Valencia. Um, you will find it in other parts of Spain as well. But what I'm saying is, and this is just advice, is that you go to a tour touristy restaurant, you know, somewhere in Spain, where maybe paella isn't a tradition in that region, and they're selling it at, uh, at dinner time at night. And, you know, Spanish people don't eat paella at night for their evening meal. So what I'm saying is the chances are if you find a restaurant which is selling paella for an evening meal at night, it's more than likely going to be a restaurant which is very touristy, which is targeting tourists, especially who think paella is like the dish of Spain when it's not. Um, and the quality might not be very good. It might be overpriced, like I was saying about sangria, um, all of these kind of cliche dishes that actually Spanish don't eat very often or they eat at very specific times. So if you're going to eat paella, uh, go to Valencia, go and order it at lunchtime when you see other Spaniards eating paella as well. Uh, it comes from Valencia. You will find it in other parts of Spain, of course. Now, uh, in Madrid, for example, I would say is probably an exception to the rule because Madrid is the capital city and it's such a melting pot of all different regions of Spain that people have emigrated from all over Spain to live in Madrid that you can find authentic paella and other dishes from all around Spain in Madrid being the capital. But I'm saying you just got to be a little bit careful about it and I would recommend, you know, probably not eating it in a restaurant uh, at night because it's going to be a bit of a tourist trap and not great quality and they might try and rip you off. Um, speaking of paella and Valencia, um, if you haven't already, go and check back the episode all about uh, Valencia, which I recorded with tour guide Paul Knowles, who's a Welshman who lives in Valencia um, and gives some great tips about where to eat paella in Valencia and sort of what you should look out for when you're ordering it as well. Staying with the uh, food theme, uh, my number three on the don't list is don't expect to only eat tapas uh, in Spain if you go to a restaurant. Now, really, the idea of tapas is not something that you go into a restaurant and you order and you order loads of it and you sit down at a table and you pick your way through, I don't know, 10 different tapas dishes all at the same time. That's really not how tapas works. In fact, if you go to a restaurant that has a menu of tapas, I'm going to say again, it's more than likely some kind of tourist trap, touristy restaurant where, you know, they think that outsiders think that the only kind of format of food in Spain is tapas. And it's totally not true. Um, a tapa really is something that is given for free, included with your drink. Uh, normally, you 
eat it with your drink standing at the bar. You order a beer or a glass of wine. They only usually come with alcoholic drinks. And they might ask you, oh, what tapper do you want? They might ask you what you want, and you can see it on top of the bar. Or they might just give you whatever they have as a tapper, and it's a small snack to have with your drink. The idea of ordering loads of tapas, and this is what happens in the UK, and I think this is why people get a bit confused by it, it just doesn't happen here. Really, I'm thinking of these big Spanish chain restaurants that, for example, we have in the UK and I'm imagining maybe in other countries around the world as well. And I was guilty of this. You'd go to a Spanish restaurant in the UK and tapas would be the thing that they would push and you'd sit down at a table and go through the menu of tapas and order, I don't know, eight different tapas dishes or ten different tapas dishes and pick your way through them all. That's not how it works here in Spain. Uh, that's not how tapas works. And you're not really, if you're going to an authentic restaurant, you're not going to find a menu of tapas, really. What you are going to find, however, is a menu of raciones or media raciones. And a ración is like, well, a ration, but a kind of portion of a particular type of food. It could be fish, it could be meat, it might be patatas bravas, it could be anything, really. And that's what Spaniards would do. They would sit down at a table and order a couple of raciones, which are much bigger than tapas, and then they would share them with friends. The other thing, of course, is in Spain, like in all other countries around the world you go to a spanish restaurant and you order a dish from a menu you know it's not just tapas and raciones but you, you'll have meat dishes fish dishes uh, seafood dishes where it's you know on a plate it's all for you might be uh, served with a side dish of salad or vegetables or potato or whatever it is and you know that's how it works also so don't get bogged down with tapas the idea of tapas is to ir de tapas or tapear which is the idea of moving from one bar to the next trying little tapas uh, along along the way. And that's what Spanish people do. They have a beer, they have their tapas, and they say, right, let's go to the next place, and they do the same thing. Um, the other thing uh, as well, in the north of Spain particularly, tapas are less common, and the version of tapas you'll find in the north is maybe a pincho, which is a little bit of bread with a tapas on top of it, and it has a little wooden stick uh, through it. And these you will see adorning bars in the north of Spain and the tradition there is yes you will pick a few pinchos put them on a plate uh, keep your little coloured sticks which correspond to the price and at the end they will charge you for your uh, pinchos so I would say uh, that is common in the north of Spain and you know in other parts of Spain as well you might find uh, pincho bars uh, there are certainly some in, uh, in Madrid as well but don't expect to see a menu of tapas and don't go and order uh, an F ton of tapas and think that that's really the way that people in Spain eat their dinner or their lunch it's, it's designed as a small snack that you have with your drink and as I say if you go to a restaurant where they've got a tapas menu, you know, a whole long list of tapas and it's, you know, two euros or 250 for each tapas, probably not going to be really an authentic place, to be honest. Number four on the don'ts list, don't eat out too early. I've talked about this loads in past episodes. I've talked about my struggles with eating late in Spain and I've got loads of stick for it and saying people saying, oh, you need to adjust. And it's true. When you come to Spain, you need to adjust your clock so that you're eating out in the evenings, I would say from 9.30pm onwards. After 9.30, more likely it's going to be 10pm. If you go to a restaurant before that, if you're going to go to a restaurant at 7.30, which is really early in Spain, uh, or even 8 o'clock, I mean, completely forget about eating your evening meal at 6, 6.30, like 
quite often happens in the UK. Forget it. Uh, a, the restaurants are going to be closed or they might be open. Uh, the bar might be open, but the kitchen isn't open yet. And if you do find places which are open, you know, before 9.30pm serving uh, evening meals, it's going to be a tourist trap. You're going to be sat with loads of other tourists. There won't be any Spanish people eating eating their evening meal before 9.30pm. And, you know, as I said earlier, with tourist traps, quality is not going to be great and you're probably going to get ripped off as well. My advice is if you can really hold out, like I said earlier in the podcast, do your little paseo, go for a walk at about 8 o'clock, 8.30 for an hour, go and have a little drink and a tapa on a terraza, and then think about going for your evening meal at about 9.30, 10 o'clock. Because I've had people say to me in the past, oh, I, I came to Madrid and I was really surprised how dead everything was. I thought Madrid was supposed to be very lively and buzzing and the bars and the restaurants were supposed to be really vibrant and lively. And I'm like, well, yeah, they are, but they're not going to be if you go there at 7pm or 7.30. You've got to you've got to wait and if you're going to go out and you want to soak up the atmosphere in the bars you've got to go even later because spanish people will eat their evening meal either at a restaurant or at home and they won't think about going out and socializing with their friends especially on a weekend until 11 o'clock so if you're tucked up in bed at 11 o'clock or shut away in your apartment or your hotel at 10 o'clock you're missing out you're missing all of that lively vibrant atmosphere which is what spain is all about so do try and hold out and go for uh, an evening meal much, much later because you're going to be going and dining alongside uh, Spaniards as well. And you're going to get that more authentic uh, experience. And, you know, the restaurants that are serving food later are going to be the more authentic traditional restaurants. And now I know for most people, this is a bit of a no brainer, but, you know, go where the locals go. Walk around, explore the place where you're staying in Spain or where you're living and go and see what the locals are doing. If you see a bar which is or a restaurant which is packed with Spaniards at 10 o'clock that is the place to go and eat go and eat with them the next one on the list number five of don'ts don't over tip now tipping in Spain or the level of tipping in Spain is completely different to what you might be used to certainly in the USA I know our American friends like to tip generously and I lived in America for a couple of years and I remember the tipping culture in the States you basically tip all the time it's a dollar down here every time you buy a drink dollar down on the bar uh, when you finished your meal what are you going to tip 20% at least well 20 I don't know 15% at least maybe 20% in Spain it doesn't really work like that now I'm not saying you can't tip to show your appreciation if you've had great service and a great meal and especially in this uh, situation at the moment post COVID-19 or post lockdown I should say anyway um, that of course any restaurants are going to be grateful of, uh, of tips to help you know boost their, their income a bit but don't get carried away you know I've seen people slam you know putting down 20 euro notes for a meal and this just blows Spanish people's minds I think they think that you've made a mistake or they might come follow after you saying excuse me you, you've just left 20 euros on the table here uh, did you mean to do that now by all means if you've had a great experience you can tip as generously as you want no one's going to turn down the money of course but just be aware that in general Spaniards are not big tippers especially if you have a meal it's quite common you know uh, to tip just a couple of euros even if there's been like a you know six of you and you've spent I don't know 100 euros on a meal for the six of you probability is people are only still going to tip a couple of euros if you go and buy a coffee in a bar um, or a breakfast yeah you might leave some small change you might leave 10 20 30 cents 
for a coffee, but it's by no means common. Most people won't leave a tip uh, for just such a small thing like a coffee. Uh, buying, you know, beers in a bar, again, it's not expected that you would tip, you know, when you're buying just a beer or a glass of wine or a soft drink or something like that. Commonly, people just leave some small change, probably, you know, not even 10% in general, more like 5%. And it was something for me at first that kind of I was surprised by. Uh, the next one on the list, staying with food. <laughs> don't criticise Spanish food, at least to a Spaniard. Well, I don't know. Spaniards are very, very proud and very protective of their food. You know, Spanish food can be quite basic and they're not really used to mixing lots of flavours together and spices and herbs and elaborate sauces and all of this kind of thing. For the most part, Spanish cuisine is, is good quality produce and, and it's kept simple and that's it, whether it's fish or meat. And I've heard some people say, oh God, this is just really basic. It's just a slab of meat which has been fried or grilled, which just comes with some potatoes or um, just comes with a basic salad or the seafood is just a plate of fried squid and that's it and it doesn't come with any elaborate sauces or anything. I don't know. Spaniards are really protective about their cuisine and I've my experience they think it's one of the best cuisines in the world and I for the most part would agree with them so just be careful about criticizing it because it's the one thing in my experience that living in Spain as any criticism about typical Spanish dishes um, people jump to its defense pretty quickly now I'm not saying they're gonna get really angry and offended but I'm just saying look out because they will uh, you know, vehemently defend the quality of Spanish food. And for me being a Brit, it's been quite amusing over the years because, you know, British food has got a really bad reputation here in Spain, and which I think unfairly now. I know maybe in the 60s and 70s, British food wasn't great. I don't know. But I think there's been a, a real renaissance in English or British cuisine in the last five or 10 years. And I have to say that, you know, that's a bit unfair when Spanish people slag off and criticise British food because I think it's come a long way. The next one on the list, don't expect everyone to speak English. Yeah, um, it's kind of a given. If you're going to go to resorts and the costas and you're going to go to, you know, your English or British restaurants, they will speak English, of course, because they're tourist destinations. I think what may come as a surprise sometimes to people when they come and visit or travel Spain is as soon as you get out of the touristy places, especially like Barcelona, um, that, uh, yeah, it's less common to find uh, people in bars and restaurants who speak English. And so a little bit of Spanish does go a long way. Even in Madrid, the capital city, in the bars and restaurants near where I live or in the centre of Madrid, um, I wouldn't expect them to speak much English or very little English. It depends on the place, of course, but your average Spanish restaurant or bar, don't go in uh, and immediately start speaking English at them because First of all, it's bloody rude just to not even greet someone with a hola or, you know, just your pleases and thank yous or, or some effort to, to speak Spanish. I've, I've seen it in Madrid and it really annoys me when I see someone immediately start just speaking English to someone in a bar or a restaurant, expecting them to, 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 to reply in English. Uh, a little bit of Spanish goes a long way. And, you know, the, the deeper into Spain you get, the less likely it is that people are going to speak English. But don't just start barking in English at someone. Just think about it. How would you feel in your home country if someone just came up to you and started speaking in Spanish without even uh, attempting to use a few words of English 
at the beginning. So yeah, Spanish, not everywhere. If you're used to spending time in resorts and touristy places, it's not going to be the same when you get into the deep Spain, into the towns and villages. And like I said, even places like Madrid, a lot of places are not going to speak English. Next one on the list, don't call Catalan or Valenciano or Euskera or Gallego, which are all of uh, Spain's co-official languages and different regions of Spain. Don't call them Spanish and don't call them a dialect of Spanish. Please don't do that. These are not dialects of Spanish. They are their own individual languages, which are different languages. Okay, yes, there are some similarities in some words and vocabulary, but they are officially different languages of Spain. So don't go to, (laughs) don't go to, uh, I don't know, Catalonia and start saying to someone that, oh, it's a dialect, isn't it? A dialect of Spanish is not, it's its own language. I mean, I think that's the obvious one. I'm sure that hopefully most people know at least that Catalan is its own language in its own right. And you will see that it is pretty different to Spanish, really. It's a kind of mix between, when you look at it written, it's kind of a mix between French and Spanish in some ways. And there are some words that are completely different to French or Spanish. Um, and the same goes for Gallego and the same goes for Euskera, which is speak up in the Basque country. They're different languages, completely different languages. So, you know, sometimes referring, uh, if you're in those regions, re- referring to Spanish as Espanol could be taken not not offensively but as a maybe a bit insensitive um a lot of spaniards actually refer to spanish or espanol as castellano castellano as spanish spanish um and you might refer to spanish as castellano when you're in the different autonomous regions of spain particularly where there is a co-official language like Catalan or like Gallego or Valenciano or whatever. You might refer to Spanish not as Espanol, but you might refer to it as Castellano. Castellano. The next one on the list is don't dress out of season. <laughs> now, when I was doing a little bit of research about this to see what other people were saying and kind of balancing that with my own experience, I had read blogs and people saying well you absolutely must never wear shorts and sandals uh, when you're not on the beach you cannot walk around the city wearing shorts and sandals this is not true i live in the center of madrid i see plenty of spaniards when it's hot walking around the city in t-shirts and shorts and sandals or you know summer shoes um i'm going to draw the line at flip-flops you're not going to see spaniards walking around in flip-flops when they're not on the beach or next to the pool so I wouldn't do that, but I've heard people saying, oh, no, you absolutely must not wear shorts and beach wear around the city. Don't walk around cities, obviously, in your, you know, your swim shorts and your bikinis. No, you know, you might do that in a resort. You know, if you're going to a beachside bar and you might keep your bikini or your swimming, well, hopefully keep it on. (laughs) I'm not saying get naked, but keep your, your beach wear on just to walk to the nearest chiringuito, which is on the beach. But, you know, walking around in cities wearing beach wear, a bit of a no, no. But, you know, you can absolutely wear shorts and T-shirts and things like this. I've heard people say that, no, really, you know, you should wear uh, jeans or trousers when you're around in in city centres and this kind of thing. That's absolutely not true. Spaniards um, have very relaxed, very relaxed in their dress, in their dress sense, I would say, in general. The other thing that's quite interesting about uh, clothes in Spain and the seasons, uh, and I've noticed this a lot, um, is that people dress for the season, not necessarily for the weather. And what I mean by that is, 
in April or March, you might have a freak day where it's 25 degrees, and I'm talking about Madrid, I guess, and it's very hot. And you're thinking, God, if this was me back home, I'd be wearing my shorts and T-shirts and and, and sandals. Um, But Spaniards don't. If it's April or, you know, if it's still in the winter months, despite it being an unseasonally warm or even hot day, will still wear their coat, their winter clothes. They might have their jumper on. I've seen people walking around with scarves draped around their shoulders when it's like 20 degrees. And I'm thinking... Is crazy, but uh, there seems to be this tradition in Spain of the summer wardrobe and the wardrobe for the rest of the year, and it's not really until May. I would say, or even the beginning of June, where Spaniards kind of change over to the summer wardrobe and start wearing shorts and, you know, summery clothes, um, even if it gets really hot, which I find is quite curious because where I'm from in the UK, as soon as the mercury hits 18 degrees, Brits are out in the parks or beaches immediately, immediately in their shorts and T-shirts and that kind of thing, which I don't think you would see in Spain. This one's interesting. Again, I asked my students about this and it was sort of uh, about 75, 25% in favour of not doing this. Um, When you're sat at the table, don't keep your hands or one of your hands under the table at meals. Don't hide your hands under the table at mealtimes. It's considered impolite, a bit like in the rest of the world where putting your elbows on the table Uh, is considered a bit rude, especially maybe in a more formal situation. While in Spain, putting your elbows on the table is also considered impolite, but so is having your hands hidden under the table. Uh, What you should do is just have your hands resting on the table, your wrists resting on the table, or maybe, I guess, with Spanish people who gesticulate a lot when they're talking is irrelevant because they would always have their hands in the air, maybe, anyway. But apparently, and I didn't know this until recently, um, it's considered uh, rude to have your hands hidden under the table. I don't know why. Um, Some people have said that it's to do with maybe... Hiding something under the table, which could be dangerous, like having a dagger under the table or something like that. Who knows? And this is a little bit connected, I think, to the tradition or the history of shaking hands with someone to show that you don't have any weapon in your hand. And maybe it comes from that. But who knows? The penultimate one on the don'ts list. This is a bit silly, but I thought it was a bit of fun. And I'm guessing that, to be honest, in general, Spaniards don't adhere to this. Don't plan anything important on Tuesday the 13th. In Spain, Tuesday the 13th is like the Friday the 13th in many other countries around the world. Definitely in the UK and the States, I think, Friday the 13th. Unlucky for some. Well, in Spain, it's Tuesday the 13th. And in fact, there's even a saying, En martes ni te cases. Ni te embarques, ni de tu casa te apartes. On Tuesday, don't get married. Don't get on board some mode of transport, maybe a plane or a ship. And ni de tu casa te apartes. And don't leave the house. I don't think many Spaniards these days would, you know, not do something on Tuesday the 13th. But it's a bit of fun and it's something to be aware of if someone mentions Tuesday the 13th and you're thinking, why is Tuesday the 13th bad? That's because it's like our Friday the 13th. It uh, is seen as maybe, if you're superstitious, bringing bad luck. The last one on the list, and I don't want to go into too much detail about this because it's a huge subject. It's a difficult subject. 
And there's lots we could say about it. Um, I'm just going to tell you about it a little bit from my point of view of being in Spain. And it's don't mention the civil war. Don't talk about the Spanish civil war. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's probably best not to talk about it um, with someone you've just met, a Spaniard you've just met or you don't know very well. Um, Having said that, in my experience with my Spanish friends uh, who I've come to get to know well over the years, they have no problem talking about it. Um, And uh, it is still a bit of a touchy subject. It's not something I would bring up casually in a conversation with a Spaniard in a bar who I'd just met and I didn't know. But I think it's something that... uh, you know, obviously is still um, a difficult subject for most people, uh, depending whatever their point of view is on Franco and the Civil War and the subsequent 40 years of the Franco regime. Um, Tread carefully about it. But if you do get to know Spaniards and you feel like you've got to that level where you feel very comfortable with them and you've made kind of formed a friendship with them, then, you know, I've done this and I've brought it up in conversations occasionally and I've found that Spaniards are very open to talking about it, their opinion on it, um, their, their family, their grandparents, um, stories. They're quite, in, they're quite keen to maybe share stories about it. I've had uh, lots of conversations about the Spanish Civil War with friends and indeed um, my students as well who are very open to talking about their points of view uh, depending what, whatever their point of view may be. But just be careful about it. You know, it's a very politically charged subject, obviously, and I don't think that you need me to tell you um, that at all. My advice would be is to do your research on it. Read some good books. There are so many good books about the Spanish Civil War. Um, If you are going to talk about it, you know, do it in an informed way. Have some background knowledge of the Spanish Civil War and go armed with that if you do want to talk about it. Because, of course, um, and I'm fascinated by the Spanish Civil War. It's a fascinating period of Spanish history. I mean, it's incredibly sad. You know, if you're interested in the Spanish Civil War, you know, in a way, what better than chatting to a Spaniard about it and getting their point of view and their stories um, and, and hearing about their family, uh, you know, and particularly, you know, older generations of the family and, and how they perceived it and how they were, how it affected them and how they were involved in it. Um, it's really interesting, but just tread very, very carefully. There, you just heard the sound of a shutter going down. It's lunchtime. And uh, so that is the perfect end to this episode on do's and don'ts in spain now there are loads of other bits and pieces as well that you're going to find online talking about you shouldn't do this don't do that and i would be here all day uh, going through lots of do's and don'ts um really this episode was a bit of fun um as i said at the beginning these are just my takes on things as my opinion as a, a giddy who's getting married to a spaniard who's lived in spain for many years and just over the years i've kind of collected this experience um and you know i hope it's useful for anyone who's coming to live in Spain or travel in Spain and I know many listeners uh, will be listen- will be listening to this <laughs> surprise surprise um, who already live in Spain and may have a different take on things or may completely disagree with me on some of these points um, and that's why I'd be interested to get you guys your take on these things and your experience in Spain and you know to compare notes please do get in touch thanks for listening I will leave it there and do stay tuned for a brand new When in Spain episode coming into your ears next week yes back into the swing no more long gaps um, I've got some great guests lined up for the next couple of weeks 
of really interesting stories and useful advice as well, especially for anyone who's planning to come and live in Spain. Do stay tuned for that. Until then, I will bid you hasta luego. Thank you.